0: Excited about our word today. I really think it's because we just posted the Spirit of Grace. I've had that on my heart all week. I've really been reveling in the Spirit of Grace. Not as if I it's not like I don't know about the Spirit of Grace. It's not like I don't walk in grace every day, but when you have a sort of a freshened revelation, it it becomes real to you all over again. And that's I think it's beautiful about our journey in Christ. Is that every now and then the journey in Christ flip, It's almost like it flips over and you get born again again. Um, I don't want to be overly dramatic that I got born again again. I just mean that there's been a fresh revelation of grace in the last couple or three weeks in my heart that has elevated my life. And I feel like that's really what God's grace is is to do in us. It elevates us from wherever we are. If we're in a low spot, it reaches down. It it goes into the valley of the shadow of death with us. It it walks out our situations. It it elevates us up to um, where we are to be in that moment. It doesn't mean we permanently walk in the clouds or we live on the mountaintop. It just means that for that season, the father has a reason to lift us up. Maybe we're down, discouraged, depressed, anxious. Maybe we're on our way to that. I think sometimes we don't even know what's around the corner. God's grace meets us on that journey to say, I need to carry you for a couple of miles you don't know about yet, and I'm going to do that. So I, I don't really even care. <laughs> I don't really even care why. Just glad. I'm excited about what he's doing and, and what he's saying. And so... I want to minister today on, the, on, on a simple topic, as simple as the spirit of grace, but as deep as the spirit of grace. I want to minister to you on radical forgiveness. Um, we talk about radical grace. That's a phrase people like to use, which is sort of a, 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 a term for hyper grace. Um, I think we ought to use the same term for forgiveness because the forgiveness that we've received from God is radical forgiveness. And I'll explain what I mean by that as I, as I go. But I want to start with a very simple Singular verse. We will work on a few other verses today, and we're actually going to land. I'll tell everybody up front, especially those that are watching, we are going to land on probably one of the message of grace's most famous verses. But I contend, based upon the translation most of us were raised in, it's actually a verse we use to sort of backdoor our way out of radical grace. We use it but then we've got a back door for why grace isn't as great as some of you guys are saying it is. Um, and by you guys, I mean you guys. So, so we will going to land there. All right? We're going to end up on a verse that is a little more grace than forgiveness. But in my opinion, grace and forgiveness are like this. I mean, the grace of God is why you're forgiven. You're not forgiven because you earned it. You're not forgiven because you deserve it. You're not forgiven because you paid the price, said the right prayer. You're forgiven because of grace. Because God went, well, we've got to forgive him. In fact, that's my verse. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father forgive them, for they do not do not know what they do. They divided his garments and they cast lots. I want to call this the fulcrum verse of the Bible. This is the climactic moment I think that all of the Bible has been working its way up towards. And I mean literally the Bible has been working its way to this moment. And the reason why I say that is because the Bible starts in the garden. Maybe it's way up here. Okay, perfection. And then if we took a a linear look across time, then we crash and burn (laughs) into sin and death. And we have this... Rocky relationship at best with our understanding of God. And so we've got pictures of God in the old Testament that are, uh, God is gracious and loving and kind and merciful and good. And then we've got, we turn right around and God is saying, kill the women and children, slaughter those armies. And there's pools of blood and you, you can live in almost schizophrenic Idea about God and His nature. If you just look at the Bible across uh, the, uh, sideways, uh, horizontally, you know, just like okay, here's our relationship with God: peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, Sinai's and Carmels, and David and Goliaths, and lions' dens and fiery furnaces. All of this stuff, prophetic stuff, and imagery, and Israel's place in the world, and Promised Land, and then comes Jesus. And of course, there's the blank page between Malachi and Matthew that sort of puts everything to a stop sign. Reep. Blank page. Pause. Matthew. Here's the genealogy of Jesus. Even Matthew pulls you all the way back, kind of takes his big hand and reaches way back to genealogy and goes, okay, let's stretch this whole thing out across time. And let's just drop names because Matthew just name drops. In the first chapter of Matthew, it goes, name, 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 this guy had this guy, had this guy, had this guy. We're just bouncing all the way through the Old Testament. It's kind of an interesting way that the New Testament begins after this long, linear journey on the timeline. And then here comes Jesus, and he's kicking and screaming as a little baby. It's God wrapped in flesh, and it's as, it's as ugly as our story. And you, you start to pick up early that it's supposed to be. It's like it's supposed to be as ugly as our story. And here's Jesus with all the requisite problems that humans run into. And Jesus is confronted. And we could drag this all day on the story of Jesus. I'll not do that. Let's just take it down to this snapshot. Jesus is confronted and is confronting. Confronted by the greatest fear we have, which is dying. All of us. And confronting the greatest fear against mankind. Death and he steps into the darkness of the cross and he spreads his arms and they put nails in his hands and his feet. They put a spear into his side and they pierce his heart. And Jesus draws his last breath, which is what every human being that ever lives has done and every human being that ever will live will do draw their last breath. And in that moment, just before it is finished, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this is a culmination of a lifetime in which Jesus has watched humans, and God has been a human, and God has been a human realizing and I don't mean to indicate that God didn't know it before, but go with me. God is, is a human realizing, wow, this humanity thing, I mean it's it's one thing to watch humanity from afar. It's another thing to get your hands dirty and be one. This isn't so easy. So there's a little bit of father forgive them. This is tough. If we don't forgive them, none <laughs> don't got a chance. We have to forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And every one of us can raise our hand and go, yeah, that's pretty good. That's a good way of saying, I don't know what's going on. I'm just making it, man. I'm just breathing from one day to the next. My heart keeps beating and I'm going to do that until it stops. And I don't know what's around the corner and I don't know what tomorrow holds. And that's Jesus going, I used to have my glory with you. I hung the moon and the stars. I don't know what, where we're getting dinner down here. You got to forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But it's but it's also bigger than that because it's not just Jesus saying, "Father, you got to forgive them." Humanity's tough. It's Jesus who's reaching into the dimension he come from. Father, give me the glory that I had with you before the world began. I've I've had I was there when we started this thing. I'm trapped in this moment right now as a as a man because a man is trapped in his moment. He can only live in his timeline. But I know beyond my own timeline, I remember the glory I had with you Father and I know I'm gonna have it again. And we're gonna build mansions and rooms for our kids and we're gonna bring them all in. And the only way we're gonna be able to do that is if we just blanket forgive them. Because we have to forgive them. The only way that they can make it home is if they can walk into this with no guilt, no condemnation, no shame, no stain. So Father, forgive them. They know not what they do and we have taken christ's moment on the cross and we have stuck it in a moment because it's the only way we really know how to think about humanity i can only think inside of i can think outside of my own lifetime but i can't know outside of my own lifetime i can only really know what i went through where i went through it what was happening on that day i don't know what was happening on the other side of the world and i don't know what was happening in you And I don't have the ability only by reading books or watching movies or TV shows to even know what it looked like before my time. I can only conjecture what it might look past mine. So everything falls into my time, my frame of reference. Same with you. And when we read Jesus say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do, we tend to put that in one frame of reference. We have Jesus then saying, Father, forgive these Roman soldiers. Father, forgive the high priests. Father, forgive these this fool to my left that's screaming at me and cursing me and telling me to die. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we snapshot that forgiveness for that moment right there, everybody in the sound of his voice. So if you happen to be 100 yards away on the hill and you could hear Jesus say, Father, forgive him, you got forgiveness for that. Oh, man, that's great. If you happen to be hanging next to him and he said, Father, forgive him, you got forgiveness for that. If you was the centurion standing at the foot of the cross about to divide his garments and cast little pieces of dice to figure out who gets his role, you're forgiven for that. And there's a little part of us in the back of our mind that goes, wow, to stand at the foot of the cross and hear Jesus say, Father, forgive him. Man, that ought to just wash over those people at the foot of the cross. And we're making a tragic error. Because we're putting the forgiveness that Jesus gives at the moment of the climactic event in spiritual history. The climactic moment of spiritual history is the cross and the resurrection. And in that moment, Jesus speaks into it. It says father forgive them they don't know what to do and we divorce the spirit side of that and we make it natural only so it only applies to the roman soldiers that killed him it only applies to the sanhedrin that put him on the cross it only applies to the criminal to his left that's cursing him it doesn't apply to what happened yesterday it doesn't apply to what's going to happen next wednesday it doesn't apply to what happens today or what's going to happen to my great grandkids that aren't born yet none of that because he spoke it in that moment and that just shows that we don't understand the nature the forgiveness of god when jesus spoke he was not speaking into a particular time and place he was speaking the forgiveness of the dying god on the cross god dying for his creation forgive them you got to forgive them forgiveness is the only way they're going to make it out of this they're doomed they're all heading to this point they're all going to die we have to forgive them They'll never be able to live up to this moment. They'll never be able to make it, Father, forgive them. And we don't have a problem with this. For some weird reason, we don't have a problem with this. When Jesus says to the woman caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And we go, praise God, no condemnation in Jesus. But we have a problem with it when he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do because we think, well, I knew what I was doing. And he's only forgiven people that don't know what they do. And that's you giving yourself way too much credit. Because the truth is, is you don't know what you're doing. You've never known what you're doing. That's the nature of being human. And that's what Jesus is saying at Calvary. Father, we have to forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So the beauty of this is you have been forgiven whether you like it or not. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross. Jesus spoke into the moment of his death. This now means they're all forgiven. They're too ignorant to do anything else. I'm going to forgive them in spite of themselves. So the good news, whether you like it or not, is Jesus spoke your forgiveness into existence. The good news is, is that in that moment when Jesus shed His blood, and we're going to take communion in a moment, and He offered His body broken and His blood shed. And it's His body and it's His blood, and He gets to do what He wants with it. And He gets to open His table and He gets to say, anybody eats my flesh and drinks my blood has my life in them. I didn't ask you to clean up before you took a drink. I didn't ask you to clean up before you ate the bread. i just saying, if you eat this flesh and drink this blood, you get my life, whether you like it or not. The beauty is, forgiveness is a real deal. It's yours. Whether you know it or not, it's yours whether you like it or not. I would even say forgiveness is yours whether you receive it or not. And you would say, well, then what good is all of this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I really think that what we ought to be doing as followers of Christ is introducing people to the beauty of their inheritance. Because Jesus talked in inheritance terms to people. Because look what you get in the kingdom. This is what you get. So when he tells story, he tells inheritance stories. People get stuff they don't deserve. They're getting it all the time. Whether it's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. These guys have been working since 6 a.m. These guys started working at 5 p.m. They all get the same thing. That's an inheritance parable, whether you know it or not. Because if it was, if it was a wages parable, they wouldn't all got paid the same. They would have got paid what they earned. But an inheritance parable is you all were going to get the same pay whether you showed up to work or not. There's glory in the work, but the beauty is I get to give you an inheritance. Okay, so I really think that it's this. You and I have received a vast inheritance in Christ. It's greater than any of us can ever really imagine. I'm 45, almost 46. I've been in church since before I was born. Um, i got four solid decades of actively trying to follow Jesus. I've learned more about my inheritance in the last five years than I knew in the first 40, I've probably learned more about my inheritance in the last two than I, than I knew in the first 43. The point of that is you keep growing, what Peter called growing in grace and in knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What we're really growing in is understanding our inheritance. But the issue is that I have this entire inheritance in front of me and all I've really done is just looked at a few papers in my Christianity, just looked at a few things that I get. and. They're mine, whether I accept them or not. But if I accept them, I can live a little happier. I can live a little more fulfilled. I can live with a little more purpose. I can live with a little less baggage. I can live with a little less fear. I know what my tomorrow holds. I got a big inheritance. If I don't know that I have a big inheritance, well, maybe I fear tomorrow in a way that's unnatural. So coming into the knowledge that I am forgiven to me, does not cause God to forgive me. It causes me to begin the process of, A, forgiving myself, and B, receiving the fullness of everything that my Father has for me. If Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, we ought to just say amen. Instead of trying to get theological with this and figure out who who all qualifies for this. I'm just, I'm just worn out with trying to take a statement by Jesus in which the creator of the universe speaks into the existence of mankind. Father, forgive them; They don't know what to do. I'm worn out with trying to theologize with why that doesn't apply to me because I wasn't there that day at the cross. And then we turn right around after the resurrection. go, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and forgave us and we can receive his forgiveness. Well, of course he did. He told us that's what he was doing when he died. And that forgiveness is not contingent on me realizing it, but I don't get to walk into it until I begin to realize it. So as I realize it, something great happens. We speak of the forgiveness of the cross as something we need to either accept or as something we need to be convinced of in order to have, but no one present at the cross did either of those things. The only, there's two people that repent at the cross. One is the criminal who goes, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right? The other is the centurion. And we don't know if he repents, but the centurion at the foot of the cross goes, surely this man was the son of God. We don't see anybody accepting their forgiveness. Oh, thank you for dying on this cross and forgiving me of my sins. But we know everyone there is is impacted by it because acceptance is not a prerequisite to forgiveness being true. Acceptance simply allows divine influence to start working in my life. So I'm forgiven whether I accept it or not. But once I accept it, I allow that to start going to work in me and doing something in me. And this is why I think it's theoretically impossible that you know you are forgiven and that you know God loves you and that nothing in your life gets affected. You just hear it, you go to the church, they give you this great sermon on grace and forgiveness, you go, I got that, that's great. And you just go right back out as if you never encountered God at all. You just have this head full of I'm forgiven and you go right back into your life and it never touches your day-to-day life. I just don't think it's possible because that would be like, oh, I know I have a billion dollar estate. I'm aware of it. I just choose to completely ignore it. It just doesn't happen. We just don't ignore it. When life gets rough, we're at least going to tap into something that we know belongs to us to alleviate those things. And so it begins to affect us. I just want to give you one example. And then I want to give you an example of what happens if you don't know it. Here's an example of what happens if you do know it. Then we're going to give you an example of what happens if you don't know it. I'm talking your forgiveness. Here's what would happen if we knew we were forgiven. Paul says something like this. We could have used a bunch of them, but I wanted to just take this one. First Corinthians four, 12 and 13. We labor, we work with our own hands. Watch this being reviled. We bless being persecuted. We endure being defamed. We entreat or we encourage or we build up. That's that word. We've been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. Why share this? Paul doesn't tell you to do these things, although, by the way, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Man smites you on the cheek, turn to him the other one. Man asks you to carry a load of mile, carry it too. Oh, you ever heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? But I say unto you, love your enemy, don't resist an evil person, pray for your persecutor, right? that's all that right there. It's just worded different. It's I'm revolved. Instead of revolving back, I bless. I'm persecuted. I don't persecute back. I just endure the persecution. They defame me. I encourage them. How does this happen? This isn't a command. Paul telling you to go do this. Paul's telling you this is what he does because Paul's had a revelation that he's not Saul anymore. I'm not what it used to be. I'm a new creation. And that's what allows me to do this. So I'm a a big believer in the radical forgiveness will radically change us. It will radically make us into the people that the Sermon on the Mount is telling us to be. Where we we mess up the teachings of Jesus is when we think Jesus is telling us to do them and then putting them up as a bar, telling you to jump, jump, try, try. You bunch of losers, you you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. And that's actually how grace teachers are teaching the sermon on the mount a lot of times as we're saying things like Jesus was trying to set the bar so high that you jump you realize you couldn't do it and so you just give up and you give up and you go to grace and that gets you off the hook from having to turn the other cheek this is how we're teaching this is how this is getting taught that gets you off the hook you're not turning the other cheek in the new covenant you don't want to turn the other cheek don't turn the other cheek they smack you kill them you're forgiven Oh, that's actually true. (laughs) If they smack you and you kill them, you are forgiven. But Paul believes that if you knew you were forgiven and if you walked into the reality of your inheritance of the new covenant, this is the kind of stuff that's going to start to happen to you. You are going to start to live out the things that Jesus told you you would live out as citizens of the kingdom. Living them out doesn't then get you off the hook in, in terms of Jesus didn't really mean that. He was just trying to exhaust you. Now that you've got grace, you can just simply ignore it. No. But we don't determine our rightness or our righteousness by it. But we do realize that in the end, Christ is manifesting himself through us for our neighbor, for our enemy, for our persecutor. Because, and this is humbling, he loves them as much as he does us. And I don't always like that fact. Because I want God to be as mad at them as I am, when they badmouth me, I'm the only one. Everybody else, everybody else is pretty cool with it. I want God angry at them and showing them that He likes me more than He likes them. And he's, like, I'm going to take care of Paul. Don't you ever do that to Paul again? And I, and he doesn't do that. And so uh, I want him to do that. Not really. Well, kind of. But it doesn't work that way. And so it's because his concern for them is as great as his concern for me. Okay, that's what would happen if you knew you were forgiven and you allowed forgiveness to go. What happens if you don't know you're forgiven? You've accepted Christ. You're baptized. You're a communion taker. You come to Bible study. You put money in the offering. You go out into the world and you carry your stuff. Most people are. Okay. They're carrying it because they were told they had to. You're condemned. You're still a little bit guilty. And I'm I'm talking. Maybe you're just a little bit guilty. You know you're pretty. Here's how I think most Christians are. They know they're saved, but they know they're pretty much saved. They've got some stuff in there they got to work out. Okay. This is the price I got to pay, and this is the stuff I got to carry. And so, some of that guilt I got to carry, some of that shame I got to carry, and some of that condemnation I got to carry. I brought it on myself. Can't expect God to just take all that away. So I got to carry that, and in carrying that, that's part of my Christian responsibility, right? I had to preach, man. Because that marries grace with law in a very convenient shadow package that nobody sees. Because it's God's grace saved all of you. You're going to make it in the end. But in the meantime, there's a bunch of stuff you need to do in order to maintain your anointing, maintain your call, maintain your favor. And we ministers and people in ministry, we perpetuate that, but we only perpetuate because it was so perpetuated to us most of the time. Like, I'm not going to be able to get up here and preach this under the anointing. If I don't do this, I'm not going to be able to have God bless me if I don't do that. Okay. We want good stuff coming out. What happens if we don't know it? Peter says this second Peter one grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord as his divine power has given to us past tense has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You already got them They're in your inheritance. Now, you may not know it, but you got them. This is what I meant earlier when I said forgiveness gives you a full spread. All you've really done is just like looked at the deed a couple times. You, like, you come to church and they read a verse and you go, oh, okay, well, I got that. You don't know what all that says. It's got a bunch of words in it, but you see a slice. So you kind of look out of that panorama of your inheritance. You get a little bit of it and you rest. What if you could have all of it? Okay. None of it out there is doing you much good where you don't know about it. It's done, but you don't know about it. All right, So you already got it. He's gave you everything that pertains to life, everything that pertains to Godliness, through the knowledge, through the knowledge, through the knowledge. You already got it, but through the knowledge, it goes to work. So God doesn't withhold from us forgiveness, withhold from us the, the gift of no condemnation, withhold from us grace, because He's waiting until we earn it. It's there. It's the knowledge of it that makes the difference in our life. And so through the knowledge of Him who called us, by glory and by virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Past tense, done deal, already got them. I'm not walking in all of them, but I got them. That through these, we get to partake in the divine nature. Look at that. You actually have the divine nature of God at work in you. I like to say this: you have the divine nature at work in you, whether you like it or not. If you're ignorant to it, I'm going to be able to do much. Most of us are ignorant to it. But as we wake up to it, this is why Paul says, wake to righteousness and sin, not as we wake up to it, things begin to happen. We escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. Also for this very reason. Now watch this. Give all diligence Add to your faith, virtue. Add to your virtue, knowledge. Add to your knowledge, self-control. Add to self-control, perseverance. Add to perseverance, godliness. Add to your godliness, brotherly kindness. Add to your brotherly kindness, love. Uh-oh, bunch of works, bunch of stuff. This is what this is the kind of stuff I was told I gotta do or I'm not gonna be saved anymore. But don't, back, don't turn this baby around. You've already been given the exceeding great and precious promises. They're yours. You just don't know it yet. If you had knowledge, you'd start to see them. You've been given the partaking, Of the divine nature you get to tap into who God is when you start to tap into that look at the stuff that pops out of your life you know who he is boom 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 stuff starts to grow out of your life so I ask you what happens if this isn't happening and get hell out of your mind well if you're not doing all this you're gonna backslide and go to hell stop you've already been given an inheritance you have the divine nature You've already been giving exceeding great and precious promises. Stop with the backsliding hell stuff. The problem here is not that you are threaten to miss God. The problem here is that you're threatened to live a life without all of this stuff, which is a version of its own hell. <laughs> to walk this out knowing you have more than you're walking in would be a hell. So I know all of this stuff could belong to me, should belong to me. Why don't it belong to me? Peter does not say it doesn't belong to you because you people aren't very good at praying. It doesn't belong to you because you people don't go to church enough. It doesn't belong to you because you don't pay your tithes. It doesn't belong to you because you haven't given to the poor. Works, 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 works. Watch the reason it doesn't belong to me. If they're yours and they abound, you won't be barren. You won't be unfruitful. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, because he who lacks these things is short-sighted, he's blind, and he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his sins. So the guy that's struggling to see this stuff come out in his life, he don't have a discipline problem. He has a knowledge problem of his own forgiveness. God's not withholding forgiveness. Jesus has already said, Father, forgive him we have decided that we're going to carry our sins. We're going to pick the baggage of our foolishness up and we're going to tote that stuff around call ourselves Christians. And you can, because you are Christian. You just carry your own guilt, carry your own shame, carry your own fear, all you want to. Or you can realize that you can lay them down, partake of the divine nature, receive exceeding precious promises, and realize that if you can just recall and remember that you are forgiven, this is all in Him. We fear forgiveness like we fear grace (laughs) because we actually think too much is dangerous. You You can't let people think they're too forgiven. That would be dangerous. And this is happening as a result of our assumption that the goal of Christianity is to stop sinning. It is not the goal of Christianity. The goal of our faith is to start living. Jesus said... I have come that you might stop sinning and that you might stop sinning forever. No, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundant. The goal of Christ was not to get you to stop sinning. The goal of Christ was to get you to start living if any man though he be dead if he believe in me he shall never die not he shall never sin he shall never die i will replace who he is with who i am i'll put who i am inside of who he is and that guy will have my life in him oh by the way if you want to know what that tastes like he goes take eat here's my body take drink here's my blood broken for you shed for you welcome to the new covenant because you can have it as much as you want You can have as little as you want. I'll open your eyes in revelation as you receive who I am. I've done the work anyway. I'm not going to die on the the cross twice. I'm not going to resurrect twice. I'm not even going to forgive you of your sins again. You've already been forgiven of your sins. Now you walking into it by confession. Open your eyes. Done deal. Get underneath the fountain of my forgiveness. Great. But the goal is to start living. This is an important sentence. Christ's death does not take away our ability to commit sins. That ought to be obvious. You're still pretty good at committing sins. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. And you accepted him years ago. And yet, you're still pretty good at committing sins, right? But it does take away the death that was associated with our old sinful man. So God goes, In Christ, I take away the effects of the first Adam in you because of the forgiveness of what happens to us on the cross. Okay. I actually want to land. Now, this has been a rather short word. I'm not done yet, but so don't get too excited. But this is kind of where I want to put my foot to land. And that is this thought I told you earlier. I think that we have a translation issue that's caused us this sort of backdoor in grace. Like we have this grace, these sets of grace verses. And I'm being... I'm being a bit presumptuous that we have sets of verses, but I mean, I've done this a while. We have sets of verses like, okay, I mean, we got grace people who quote some things and don't even know other stuff's in the Bible, like, and we're all guilty of it. I was driving in Buford the other day and there's a dude standing on the street corner and he had like four signs and all of them were judgment and hell and sin. And they all had a verse attached. This is what's about to happen. And every one of them, he was like three verses away from the glory and he just quoted the wrong verse. Like one of them, he had us, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I said, if he would just sneak down nine more verses, he would realize, and God has reconciled the world to himself by not counting their transgressions against them. Mm -hmm. So be you reconciled to God. That's all, if he did nine more verses, he he could have built a whole different poster. Same chapter even, didn't even have to go that far. Another one quoted half of a verse, repent. Repent and be converted. That was the whole verse. That was was what his board said. Repent and be converted. It's half of Acts 319. Repent and be converted. For the times of refreshing have come from the presence of the Lord until the day of the restoration of all things in Christ Jesus. That's the whole verse. He only quoted half of it. And he had to put a sticker over the verse because he had obviously printed it wrong, got called on it, and had to reprint a verse number to stick up over the verse so he could quote the half of the verse that didn't get you saved. I went, okay, this is the uphill battle that we face constantly of the cherry-picking verses. I realized, in part, so yes, we have our verses. Good Lord, do we have our verses. Like, this is the one I quote, that's the one I leave alone. Well, part of that is translation issues because we've been beholden, say, for instance, most of us were raised in sort of King James Version-ish. Maybe you weren't raised all King James, but you were raised King James Version-ish. So it got like predominance, and then there was other... If it fit the sermon, the preacher might go, you know, there's another translation that says it like this. And he might not even tell you the translation lest you go to the bookstore and buy one. So, it's, you know, it's like, don't tell you what it was. It's a little bit different. Those stick in our heads like worms. <laughs> like to this day, I'll hear verses and I'll hear them in King James. because That's the way I was raised in them. And I'll hear somebody quote one from an alternate translation. i go, hmm, I didn't say that. That doesn't say that at all. And I've had to go, I would go to the Greek and find out. Maybe you weren't right. Maybe you were hearing something wrong. Let me show you one of those. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Classic, Paul. He's not really answering a question as much as he's asking three questions in response to the end of chapter five. At the end of chapter five, he gets brazen. He's really on fire. And he goes, where iniquity doth abound, grace doth much more abound. He goes, if if you can find a lot of sin, he goes, you'll find a lot of grace. Actually, he says this. If you find a lot of sin, you'll find purissimo caris, hyper grace. Hooper's where we get the English word hyper. So the next time somebody makes fun of you for being a hyper grace person, you're just a Romans five person. Paul goes wherever there's sin, there's hyper grace he goes, because the grace has to be higher. So wherever your sin is, grace jumps it, grace leaps over it. Paul realizes that people take that stuff and they try to use it as an argument. maybe you should go ahead and sin. So he goes, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Which is the classic question people ask when they go, are you saying that we ought to just forget about living right? Just go ahead and sin because God's grace has got you anyway. Is that what we should do? God forbid. And right there has been our back door out of being really hyper with grace because as long as God forbid has been there, we can say God forbids you from sinning in the light of grace. If you're sinning in the light of grace, you're sinning in rebellion against God who forbids it to happen. What do you think happens if God forbids something? And we kind of back off of radical grace because Paul said, God forbid that you would ever do that. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin? He asked one more question. And this, by the way, is the crucial question. This is the key. How can we that are dead to sin live any longer in sin? Singular, singular, not plural. Not shall we continue in sins or sinning, but shall we continue in the noun, not the verb. Okay. We're concerned with the verb in the church. Stop it with the action of sin. Okay. Paul's actually saying, how can we that are dead to the thing of the old sinful man, live any longer therein. But here's the two words I want you to focus on. God forbid. They thunder like a sledgehammer. God forbid. That's enough for me, right? God forbid. It's It's not possible that we can do that. God forbid. God will not allow it. God forbid is Greek. Theos apogorevo. This is not what Romans 6.2 says at all. And I wanted to emphasize not with big old caps and I wanted to put at all as its own sentence because God forbid would be the word theos apogarevo. Neither theos nor apogarevo is in the Greek. I have no idea what our King James translators were reading, but they were not reading theos apogarevo, which would be God forbid. Here's what's in the Greek. Mi genoito let it not happen or no way that's nonsense we cannot make grace abound more than it already does to ask if we should sin more so that grace will abound is absurd it abounds as much as is possible for it to abound whether you sin or not your sin has absolutely no bearing on the abundance of god's grace besides it's nonsense to think your sinful man is still alive. How can we who are dead to our sinful man continue any longer? Paul goes, nonsense. You're asking the wrong question. Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? He goes, that's a stupid, this is as close as you can get to going, that's a stupid question. You're not even alive the way you used to be alive. What happens if I sin? It's not the sinful man sinning. You are in Christ. That's his answer. Nonsense. Shall we continue and send the grace of nonsense? Not possible. You're not who you used to be. Yes, you're going to fail. You're not who you used to be, though. He has declared you to be in the resurrected man. So we're making an argument against something that Paul would be hitting his head going, it's not, even, it's not even possible. You're asking about something that's nonsense. There's no way that it's possible for you to keep on being old Adam once you're resurrected into new Adam. Can I still fail? Well, I don't know. Can you? Well, of course you can still fail. You fail all the time. What doesn't fail is, Father, forgive them. They don't know not what they do. Do you need a fresh revival of it? Okay. You need a fresh revival, and you will. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and forgiven. Faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. First John 1 9. You want to agree with God, homologio? Agree with the word, homologio. Homo same logios logos word, same word. Say the same word about your sin that God does and watch the waterfall clean you off. What's he say about your sin? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I like the thought that we cannot make grace abound more than it does. Who do we think we are? Well, if you just sin, more grace abound more. Stop it. That's nonsense. Grace is abounding and abounding and abounding and abounding. Your sin can never catch up. It's just not possible for your sin to catch up with the grace of God. Okay, well, then what are we supposed to do? This, this is a question that, that almost really bugs me anymore. People go, well, what are we supposed to do? If 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 everybody if Jesus forgave everybody at the cross and grace is abounding no matter what people do, what are we, why are we even out here preaching the gospel for? And I go... It's obvious to me how few Christians have tapped into their inheritance. That all they think Christianity is is a fire escape. If I just knew I wasn't going to hell. And they're like, which tells me that a lot of people are living lives that they wouldn't be living if they thought they could live another way and not burn forever. And they're doing it in church. Like they're going to church, they're going, I got to go live this way. Cause if I didn't live this way, I'd burn in hell. They go, what, what, what happened if you didn't burn in hell? And they go, well, I'd try a couple things. And you're like, it's amazing how we're holding back on things because of a fear of retribution. And I believe that once you are released into knowing you're forgiven, you end up with 1 Corinthians four, you end up with Paul going, I'm pressed, but I don't press back. I'm persecuted, but I don't revile. I encourage, I build up. Why? Because I start to reflect the Christ that saved me. And as I reflect the Christ that saved me, I realize that I have a role to play in this journey. Radical forgiveness to me means you are forgiven whether you like it or not, you're forgiven whether you know it or not, but the tragedy would be not knowing it. Because what happens if you don't know it is that you will live as if you're not forgiven. You will carry your own guilt, you will carry your own shame, and what will come out of that is that you will fail to put on any of the stuff in 2 Peter that really make your life a little bit more at peace. And it's because you can't put them on because you don't think you're worthy of them. Because you're carrying your own unforgiveness all the time. You also live tentatively and without freedom. You you don't live loosely and easily. You live tight and bound because you're always afraid to sin. Because you're scared that the next sin you won't be forgiven of if you go out here and we used to say stuff like this. You go out here, if you don't come up here and confess all of your sins, you go out here and get hit by a car on your way home. Now, we always had people getting hit by cars on their way home at night. It was such a, we were always doing this in the church. We always had people getting killed in five minutes after they leave the parking lot. You go out here and you leave the parking lot in five minutes you get killed. You didn't come up here and confess that sin. How are you gonna stand before God knowing you didn't confess your sin? I'll tell you how you're gonna stand before God. Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father with nail scars in his hand, going, 2,000 years ago I said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because none of us know what we're doing, and Christ has paid the price for our forgiveness. Now the tragedy is that we think that if we walk out of this building and bad things happen to us, we now bear the brunt of everything that Jesus paid for us to do. I honestly don't even know why we think Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the dead. If it was a conditional event that happens across time only when people reach out and grab it. No, Christ finished the work. What I'm reaching out and grabbing is my own knowledge of what he's done for me. He doesn't do it when I reach out and grab it. I just get in on the party. Listen, man, the elder brother is standing in the yard, robed over in his religion and they're throwing a party in the house for his brother. And the father goes, son, what is wrong? Everything I ever had was yours. Your brother was lost and he's found. We're rejoicing and you can't even get excited about it. The bad part is that the parable of the prodigal son ends with the older brother in hell. This never, no one ever says this, but this is what happens. The older brother's in hell because hell is standing outside a party you're not in. And you want to be. And the real hell is knowing that dad has handed you an invitation and you're too stubborn to go in. That's hell. Dad goes the whole party here. You can, you can get in here anytime you want. And you go, it's not fair. He didn't say, forgive me. That little punk's been living like a dog. I've been out here working for you. And God goes, you want to stand out here and be religious all you want to? There's a party going on in here full of grace and you can have it. Or you can stand out here and scream and whine and cry that life ain't fair. I do this partying, son. You don't run parties. I run parties. I'm the party, dad. I'm the one throwing the party. You're the one out here whining. I I just... I don't want to live my whole Christian life whining about how good God is to people I don't think deserve it. I just want to rejoice that people, that people do deserve it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be standing outside parties. Not if, not if dad's throwing the party. Dad throws the party. Mm-hmm. This guy wants in. I mean, I, what do I got to do? And dad goes, you yeah, know, do anything. Just come on in. You know, that's my kind of party. I, mean, I don't have to do anything. All i ever had was yours. I don't really know how to end radical forgiveness. We're going to talk about God's forgiveness over and over. And I want to just keep reveling in how good it is. So I'll stop by saying that I hope you watching or you in this room can at least leave and say, I need to tangle and wrestle with the moment at the cross where Jesus says, Father, forgive them. If you respect it is finished, as most of us do, then you ought to respect Father, forgive them. Because if it is finished, then the Father forgave us. And if he forgave us, it's time to start, it's time to start acting like we're forgiven. And stop living up to being forgiven. I'll say, one, what, what, what might you do if you actually got this? You'd lay your baggage down. And here's one more. You'd forgive some unforgivable people in your life. Cause there's some unforgivable people did some unforgivable things to you and you've been holding it against them and you're the only one losing in that game. They're still living their life. You're in here thinking about them all the time. They're out here just living it up and you're mad. You're like the older brother. A lot of us that are unforgiving are the older brother Are the person we won't forgive is in the house wearing shoes and the robe and the ring and eating the fatted calf. And we're so mad that they're in there and they don't know how bad they hurt us. And dad's out here going, you could just lay all this down, come into the party if you wanted to. You're the only one losing right now, son. Forgiving people is tough because forgiving, forgiving people causes us to die in a way that we don't want to die. Because when you forgive somebody, you got to die to be in right. Um, what did I say to you? Tuesday night in the Spirit of Grace, the last line, drop dead to being right. Well, I was actually didn't realize when I said it, I was actually just sort of pre-saging this sermon. Just drop dead to being right, and you can forgive people. If you drop dead to being, to getting what you wanted, you can forgive people. It's incredible how many of the parables of Jesus actually spiritually involve people dropping dead. Because Once you do, then you get to get what it is you want. All right. I'm going to stop there. Father, thank you for today. What a word. Thank you for this week, which has been radical forgiveness for me right on the heels of the spirit of grace. You explode this phrase radical forgiveness in me and you're, you're telling me something. Um, this is a, a fresh revival of how to live my own life. And if I can live my own life this way and then give that out to everyone that I encounter, then father, I can live loosely and easily peacefully in your presence. I pray for those who watched today, who come to this message looking for forgiveness. May they receive it. I pray for those today who, in this message, realize they've been withholding forgiveness. Teach us how to drop dead and just forgive. Let us all into the party, the party you've been throwing, whether we like it or not, whether we go or not. Teach us how to get into that door, not based upon our own works. In Jesus' name, amen.